My name is Sivia Cohen. I'm the founder of 14 Minds, a marketing agency that specializes in developing strategic campaigns that help nonprofit organizations connect with their audience. I've had the privilege of meeting some inspirational nonprofit leaders and doers who have devoted an untold number of hours to achieving their mission. Many of these incredible individuals have shared a similar frustration with me along these lines. No one knows what we really do, not even our own volunteers. It's so hard to explain all of our different services. People think our organization is a lot smaller than it is. That's why I created this podcast, to give non-for-profits a platform to share their mission with the world. I hope these conversations inspire you as much as they inspire me. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining today. Um, today's really going to be really fun for me. This is the first time I'm ever interviewing someone who is not only someone I respect and I'm very lucky to be speaking to, but someone I actually worked with as a client. So I'm really, really excited to introduce Rabbi Phil Karish, who is the Executive Director of OU's Community Projects and Partnerships. And Rabbi Karish, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you. So let's dive right into the details. I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us you know, how you got started, however far back that story goes, um, how you got started first of all in the nonprofit world. Sure. Uh, well, uh, the story starts in a little bit of a different direction. When I was in college, I majored in biology and was headstrong about going into the medical field uh, with an eye in particular on being an emergency room physician. One of the things that I did at that time to bolster my resume was I joined Hatzalah in Washington Heights and worked in that space for about two years. Um, and then over the summers when I was at home uh, during college, I would go back to a childhood camp that I grew up in, Camp Mosheva. And uh, when I was younger, I was a camper. And once I turned 18 and I was on the staff side, I basically spent most of those next uh, 10 years as an educator for uh, Orthodox teens uh, from the modern Orthodox community here in Chicago and uh, in some of the environs beyond. The minute I walked in that door as an educator, everything changed. At that point, I knew that the medical field, while I had interests in the medical field, and I still do, um, and they have an application in my life, as I'll share with you in a moment, but I knew that I was going to be going into Jewish education. And then I signed up for a master's in education here in Chicago through Loyola University. Um, and, uh, and I got smicha from Yeshiva University, uh, and I have never looked back in that regard. About 10 years, uh, 10 years ago, actually more like 13 years ago, my mother-in-law uh, had one of, as she says, one of her best ideas ever. She said, Phil, you have a, the medical bug and you're a rabbi. Why don't you put the two worlds together and become a moel? So I took my mother-in-law's advice, and I trained for a very long time to become a moral. And over the last uh, 12 years or so, I've done uh, a couple thousand circumcisions, brisom here in the Chicagoland area and beyond. So that's a little bit of a background of how I took my interest in science and my interest in education um, and have blended them together. So that put me into the not-for-profit world as it relates to, to Jewish education. And I started as a Rebbe in one of the local day schools here for five years. Um, and uh, then I started working for NCSY, which is, of course, a department of the Orthodox Union. Um, and from there, slowly took on more and more responsibility within the organization until a couple of years ago, I landed in this new department of community projects and partnerships. 
So that's a very vague title for this department. Can you tell <laughs> us a bit about, well, how it would, how it's, you know, how that department came to be, how it was started, what the mission of it is and what your role is in that department? Sure, sure. So about two and a half years ago, the leadership uh, at the Orthodox Union changed. The previous executive vice president, Mr. Alan Fagan, was finishing up his responsibilities. And the OU was then on a search to find the new executive vice president. Um, under the leadership of Moish Bain, who's the lay president, they opted for a co-leadership model. And they hired, <clears throat> as the face of the organization, Rabbi Moshe Hauer, who's one of the executive vice presidents. He is uh, a veteran shul rav from Baltimore, Maryland, with 26 years um, standing at the pulpit um, and a master of his trade. People say about him that he is the rabbi's rabbi. He is the one who people call when they're rabbis and they're stuck. Um, and as well, his partner, Rabbi Dr. Josh Joseph from uh, Yeshiva University originally, and he moved over to the OU world as well, right after Rabbi Howard started. And the two of them function as co's, uh, as co-EVPs. Now, when they started, they uh, saw that there was a particular need that uh, really wasn't being met by the OU. Uh, and the OU needed to be the place that met this need. The broad need that they were talking about is, uh, is as follows. The Orthodox community at large throughout the United States, like any other subsect of, of society, has its own unique challenges, has its own unique quirks and personality and fingerprints to it. And now we had been kind of dancing around this by working on certain issues, but never really going for the jugular. And Rabbi Hauer wanted to see his vision through in this space. So he opened a new department called Community Projects and Partnerships. Um, and what we do is we work with communities and we build partnerships with them in order to bring about meaningful projects. So the basic formula for our department is that we identify significant challenges to the Orthodox community. We identify solutions to those challenges, and we very carefully package them to be digestible for the Orthodox Jewish community. And we have about 10 projects under our belt right now, two of which are our, are our flagship initiatives for this current set of many years. Um, and, uh, you know, the one that's uh, really relevant to our conversation, since I lead this particular project uh, with amazing graphic design by 14 <laughs> Minds, I might add, if you're looking for a plug, <laughs> is, uh, is the following uh, initiative. It's referred to as Gen Olive. Um, and Gen Olive is a suite of research-based resources to help parents learn how to bond better with their children. But I want to be clear. This parenting initiative isn't only about parenting. The deeper underlying concern that we were seeing across the, uh, the spread of the Orthodox Jewish community is significant rates of attrition. Uh, there was a study done, a Pew study in 2013, that indicated with this language that those who were raised Orthodox, 66% of them would still consider themselves Orthodox. And if you invert that number, that means that about a third of Jews who are raised Orthodox no longer identify as Orthodox. Wow. That is a terrifying number for the Jewish people. Terrifying. And listen, we live at a time where the path of least resistance is going to be watching a movie and binge watching and chilling on your cell phone and social media, whereas uh, all the literature behind me is, uh, is sitting in the back seat. And that's a big problem. The Torah has been the mainstay of the Jewish people for, for millennia. And if we're not going to be steeped in Torah learning, then the way the world works is that you end up placing your eggs in a different basket. So the path of least resistance often leads to a scenario of disenchantment or disinterest. It's too hard. 
the mountain is too tall to climb, and I don't speak Aramaic, or I don't speak Hebrew, or I'm not interested in that literature, or those cases don't seem relevant to me. So we have a real challenge where the Torah values that we so deeply espouse and hope and pray to pass on to the next generation are being challenged by an environment in which we live where the path of least resistance is right at your fingertips. So when we started this parenting initiative, it wasn't only about parenting. It's more that parents are the most essential bottleneck to access the the next generation of the Jewish community. And if Bottle, we don't bottleneck is a tough word. <laughs> It's more like a portal of entry. Okay. It's more like it's more like they're they're the ones who have access to everybody else. Point a, yeah, point of entry is probably a better term. So, yeah, a little so less scary. <laughs> a little less scary. Yeah. So but just it, it, it is true. For one yeah. second, you identified this problem of the rate of attrition being incredibly high. Before you went this route, were there any other solutions that you kind of identified and maybe discussed as a possible route before choosing to go the parenting route? It really was a pretty short conversation. Um, you know, the the other points of entry in a community uh, is clergy. You're looking at you know the shul model. Um, you know, as someone who's gone through gone through rabbinical studies, and a lot of my peers are rabbis in synagogues. Rabbis uh, and their wives are completely overtapped as it relates to communal needs. Um, they're dealing with with fire after crisis after trauma. Um, and they're already firing on all cylinders to, with the same vision anyways. But the acute nature of what needs to happen is really micro. You know, a rabbi is a little bit more macro on the wider communal level. But the change that needs to take place is really at, at a lower on the food chain, as it were, uh, on the communal, on a more micro level, in order to work with people directly to solve those problems. And parents... Uh, we identified very quickly that parents really are are the place of of starting to focus. We also thought about school principals again, another place where you know these are the two roles the clergy and the principalship are the two roles where uh, where they really have access to the whole of the orthodox community but each institution with their challenges because of their limited bandwidth and they're already trying to do what they're doing in schools you have dual curriculum and you have behavioral issues and you have there's so much going on in a school space. Uh, you know, we really felt that to, to saturate still more, an oversaturated space probably wasn't the avenue to go. So we wanted to build a model that was digestible for parents, low key in regards to time investment by and large, but very highly effective on the return on investment of what they're actually gaining out of this project. So if you could go into detail for a few minutes in terms of what it is that you're hoping to, I guess, teach or share with parents that you think might be the first step in solving some of these problems of attrition. So the research is really very clear. Uh, we know this from uh, hundreds of different sources, and we have a lot of the literature on hand. If parents do a better job in bonding with their children, both as a family unit and individually with each particular child, the outcome of that investment of bonding, uh, it decreases the likelihood of depression and anxiety. Uh, it decreases the likelihood of use of marijuana, edibles, and th that genre of drugs, and therefore decreases the likelihood of using still stronger drugs, the cocaine world and all of the, the more severe, highly, highly addictive drugs. Um, as well, the research indicates that children who have healthy bonding with their parents are more likely 
to follow in the path of their parents' values. But that was a, a critical piece of data for us because that was exactly what, that's the jugular for us. That's what we were, that's what we're looking for. So that's really the most nuclear core idea of what we are focusing on is parent-child bonding. And it's not new because parents already know that that's something that they should be doing. And we're already doing it in some way, shape, and form. But what we need to do is hone in on those skills and put our phones away and make sure that we're able to spend quality time. It's not quantity time, high quality time with all of our children and with each of our children. You know, one of the examples that I like to give in this area is, let's say you're on a work call or I'm on a work call. So I have my phone up to my ear. A child comes and pulls on my pant leg with yogurt on their face and now on my pants. And they're like, Abba, 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 I need you. So I may say to that child, I'm on a work call right now. I can't talk right now. So that's fine. Sometimes in life that happens. But it also has to be the reverse. Sometimes I have to be talking to my child. And when, when work calls, I have to say to work, I'm sorry. I can't talk right now. I'm with my child. And we have to be, be equal footing in those places. Otherwise, our children will feel that our work is more important than they are. It's not words that we ever said, but it's an implication from our behavior. So these are just small ideas that are all part of this core uh, nuclear idea that we have to learn to bond really well with our kids. And if we do, then the outcome areas for our children will be so much better, even in regards to health. Uh, there was a study done out of Stanford University. Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman writes this in his book, To Kindle a Soul, that they uh, did a long-term a long, a long study on, uh, on children who were now adults. And they asked those adults, how would you rate the level of warmth of your relationship with your parents? And it went through all the way from cold to medium to warm, whatever the parameters were. The outcome of the study was shocking. The study was so clear. If you are a, someone who um, had a warm upbringing, so then the likelihood that you would experience a major life-threatening medical issue in your life was about 40, I think the study wrote 49%. But if you're someone who lived through a colder childhood, those numbers neared 100%. It's an unbelievable, and we're not, even, we're not only talking about the social emotional, there are even physical health benefits of giving our children the love and affection, and at times the discipline, which is also part of love, and also the space that sometimes a child needs. All of that is within this rubric of bonding with our children. There's no one formula. Because every child is going to be a little bit different. With some children, you have to be more rigid. With some children, you have to be a little bit more loose. But all of that is within this rubric of bonding. Um, and the payros, the fruits uh, of focusing in on, on bonding with our children. If nothing else, if we, if we accomplish zero other than a handful of families bonding better with their kids, they'll be changed for generations. For sure. Um, I, I don't think anybody could listen to this and, and disagree with anything and the importance of it. But... I guess the question would be in the application of it. In we live in a time I think is is probably um, it's no coincidence that the rates of attrition are going up because I think parents today uh, are raising and I'm including myself in this. We're raising children in a very high pressure, fast paced environment with the challenges of technology and the pressures to live up to a lot of expectations and, and juggle so many different things. So. How do you take this like big idea, which sounds really important, but also a little bit lofty and, and maybe not yes. so tangible? How does Gen Olive actually support parents and, and provide these the resources and the structure to make this real and not just a lofty idea? Sure. Uh, you know, the execution of a lofty idea 
that that's everything. You can sit in the, in the think tank all you want, but when the rubber has to hit the road, it has to be digestible and it has to be tangible. So when we're deploying uh, Gen Aleph in a community, step number one, step number one is B2B. We have to work with the organizations on the ground. Look, my department is one department and relative to the size of our vision, we are a skeleton crew. So how is it that I'm going to be able to work in Cincinnati as we've done and in Houston and now we're starting in Southern Florida with other cities that are in the pipeline? How do we get that done? Number one is we have to recognize that we are not the movers and shakers in those communities. You need principals, you need uh, shul rabbis, shul rebbitzins, men and women, lay leaders, those who are on the philanthropic side, those who are on the doing side. We need to have a, a basically it's a it's like a satellite team of leadership in the community. Now we know shul rabbis and all of the other people that I mentioned are are terribly busy people. So what we did and. Uh, Another shameless plug for you is that what we needed was resources that we could give to a community and say, don't lift a finger. We did all the graphic design for you. It's done. Deploy. Here you go. This is the email you're going to send out. It's all part of the color scheme with the flyer that's going to be hung in the show and the WhatsApp video that you'll see when we're promoting our programming. We had to create a B2B model where the shows and schools would not be adding very much work to their plate, if at all. It's really very simple on that side. We do ask our show rabbis periodically to make mention of this either in a drusha format or in an email depending on the comfort level of that particular show if we're launching a program there are partners on the ground they're like the mouthpiece of what we're doing phil from the ou sent an email that's not that's not the way we change people we need force multipliers and on the ground those force multipliers are shul rabbis principals and the men and women of the community who are very passionate about this cause so once we have the buy-in of the leadership of a community then we will uh we'll do a launch in the community where we bring the whole community together heavy push from all the organizations again all the pr provided uh from our side that we give out to the community and uh at that meeting we would bring in one of the leadership of uh one of the leaders of the ou to speak we would bring in one of our partners in uh, in our initiative dr ellie shapiro uh, who is focused on the Digital Citizenship Project, as well as some other major projects in the world of technology. And we'll do a big launch in the community. And then after that, we'll move toward deploying some of the resources within the community. But the participation end of the parents is not very heavy. I would say um, of all the resources, there's only one that actually requires a significant time commitment. And it's only five weeks. This is a remarkable curriculum that we were introduced initially by SAR to this curriculum, which is out of the University of Washington. University of Washington has a department called, called Communities That Care, and they developed a curriculum in the early 80s uh, that was actually initially focused on substance abuse. I remember in the early 80s, they had this commercial, This Is Your Brain, and they showed you an egg cracked into brain a on drugs. Exactly. And then in a frying pan, they dumped the egg and said, This Is Your Brain on Drugs. So um, that for us, I remember that as a kid. This was 35 years ago that I rem- that I have these memories, and I, I remember the sizzling. It's a it's a strong, the strong advertisement. So at that time, there was a ramping up of, sub- of substance abuse issues without any strong curricula to really combat it. So the University of Washington um, had people on their team. They had researchers, and they built a whole curriculum around substance abuse. What they found is that the tools that they were using to combat substance abuse were equally helpful for depression and anxiety. They were also helpful for all of the other outcome areas that we discussed before, behavioral issues, um, you know, a lower likelihood of being involved in drugs of any kind, et cetera. 
So then they had this idea, hey, this isn't only a substance abuse program. This is a parenting program. And they took this curriculum and over the course of the last 35 plus years, they have uh, worked on it. They have evolved this curriculum into a program that has now been learned by hundreds of thousands of families throughout the world. It's a remarkable curriculum. And to measure their own efficacy, they've also done many studies on their own work to show that it's effective. This is the craziest part of the whole thing. Let's say that you, Sivia, as a mom, when we finally deploy this in New York, we're gonna, I'll give you a discount. You can sign up. Thank when you, you, when you. When you finally do take this course, here's the craziest part of the research. The University of Washington published a research brief that speaks about the uh, power of guiding good choices, this curriculum. If you as a mom took this course, and even if your kids never took the course, your grandkids would be statistically better off in these outcome areas, even if only you took the course. It's really powerful. And they actually, I was recently trained by the University of Washington to be a trainer of this curriculum. The material, it's like the Ramchal says in, about Masih Lassasharm. It's not a lot of chidushim. It's, the, the method of parenting is old. There's nothing new about it. This week's Parsha, actually. Benafsho, Kshura, Benafsho. The connection that Yaakov felt to his son, son Yosef, he couldn't even have prophecy when he was so, he, he couldn't recover. Benafsho, Kshura, Benafsho, he was so tightly bound. We know the rules of bonding. We know them. But because we're immersed in a culture that embraces technology, which is in its essence a distraction, even though it's helpful at times, but how do we maintain benafsho, kshura, benafsho? So there's no chidushim. There's nothing novel, nothing unique about the curriculum. It's more about just reminding us and being machazic ourselves to do what we need to do as parents. I don't claim righteousness. I'm not, I'm not the perfect parent. I'm struggling like everybody else is struggling. And that means that at times I'm good with my phone and at times I'm less good with my phone. At times I'm good with the work, child balance, and sometimes I'm less good about it. It's a constant struggle. There are very few people who are perfect. If they say they're perfect, you found their first flaw. There's, not, this, there's, no, there's no perfection here. This is a, a constant evolution of growing, for me as a parent, for growing as a human and growing as a parent and making sure that I'm giving my kids everything they need. So that's going to be the biggest time investment. Guiding Good Choices is five weeks, two hours a week in person. But if you're looking for a return on investment, your grandkids, who you don't even know, are going to be the beneficiaries of those five nights. So there's every reason, get a babysitter, call it a date night, uh, and, and come out to the Guiding Good Choices program, because that's going to be one of the biggest return on investments we could possibly offer our community. I have tremendous appreciation for the University of Washington, because they actually relicensed their whole curriculum for us, so that we could make sure that all of the pictures in their manual were in line with orthodox standards. Um, they were extremely, exceedingly accommodating um, and we had our team go through their book to make sure that all of the pictures were kehilchasa, uh, as we say, that they were all in line with uh, with the standards of our community. That remarkably accommodating team, very talented group of, of experts and researchers, and um, and they've really enabled us to to spread their wings in our community. Yeah, that's very important because when you're dealing with the Orthodox community, it has to check off all the boxes. So right, exactly. I know that would be important. I want to just step back a couple of minutes to sure. what you said about, um, you know, having, you know, part of the program is starting with the leaders of each community. I'm yes. curious if you faced any, I don't want to say challenges, but if you faced any concerns or questions from these leaders about the program or about the details about it, and if so, how, you know, what you did about those. Sure. Yeah, we did uh, run into some, some expected challenges in some way. Um, look, the Orthodox community is very broad. Uh, you know, you have within the Orthodox flank, you have those that are 
um, more to the right and those who are more to the left. And then, of course, as bell curves work, most people fall somewhere in the middle. Um, one of the concerns that was raised for us was that the research is all great. I'm sure it's all true. Uh, and we, we have our own principles that require of us or allow us to listen to the values that are found outside of the total world. Uh, but there were certain elements of the community that were not comfortable using the program without a haskama, without a rabbinic approval of the program. So um, myself, along with my colleague, Rabbi Simon Taylor, who's the national director of our department, um, he and I went to Philadelphia and met with Rav Shalom Kamenetsky Shlita, um, and we presented him with guiding good choices with one full packet, uh, one full week's worth of material for him to peruse. Uh, we sat with him for um, uh, over an hour. Um, he asked us a, a bunch of clarifying questions to make sure he understood the product. And the way he said it was, I don't understand why you need me to approve this project. I don't understand. We're just working on our parenting. And he said the material, he, he used the word science. He said it's equivalent to science in a way. So so those are some of the challenges that were relatively easy to navigate because I, I've never met a, a rub of a community, a Rosh Yeshiva, who doesn't view parenting as a significant challenge. So as long as it's being done in a way that's within the confines of halacha, which is what we're doing, uh, because we are a, a from Torah-based organization, so that's going to be our, our starting point. So he was, he was supportive uh, of the program that we're running, yes. That was really probably one of the bigger challenges that we experienced. Um, and, uh, and again, it was n nothing we couldn't overcome because... It, everyone is drinking from the same water. We all know what's going on in communities. We may not know all the statistics, but we all know that there are some significant challenges in Chinuch. So the Rosh Hashiva Rabbi Kamenetsky was uh, more than willing to, to share this. I met with other Rabbanim as well in New York who were, uh, you know, some organizations asked us to meet with them. And uh, they too were very supportive with, with warm letters of approbation to support what we're doing. I know you're still in the earlier stages of rolling this out. Um, do you have ways or are you thinking about ways of tracking how impactful this is going to be on a community by community level? Uh, yes, for sure. Um, it, within the OU, we have a department called the Center for Communal Research. And this is a bunch of extremely smart people uh, who know how to measure uh, success and failure. They're, they are a no frills group. They don't want data that's bad and, uh, I recently had a meeting with the director of their team, Dr. Michelle Shane, um, and she said to me, I asked her about sending out a survey for something. She's like, the data will be useless. Save yourself some time. <laughs> so they have very high standards of what that means. And we have developed a, uh, a pre and post survey that we will be issuing out, like let's say right before we start guiding good choices, when you get into the program for night one, everyone will sit and fill out a brief survey, just a few minutes long. And then three months later, we'll do the same survey. And three months later, again, we'll do the same survey. And while they may never know your name, you are, it's anonymized, so we won't know who you are, but the you will be a hexadecimal code, family, you know, ABC123. So we won't know who you are, but we can track your growth as parents over the course of time. And that will give us a statistically significant measure of, of what we're doing to make sure that we're actually moving the needle and trying to create change. So that's something which is a key part of what we're doing. This survey was built a year ago, almost maybe even more you know, before we ever launched it anywhere. <laughs> Uh, and it's, it's really, it's a critical piece of what we're doing. We, we don't want to sit here and turn our wheels. It's not a feather in our cap to run a program that isn't successful. 
no, I don't, that doesn't make me get up in the morning and say like, yay, another day of spinning my wheels. No, we want to know that we're moving the needle and let's go back to where we started. We want to know over the course of time, could it be that this uh, initiative, as idealistic as this sounds, could it be that it played a role in stemming the tide of, of attrition from the Orthodox community? And we, we have to be thinking on this level. The OU is so large and we need to leverage that platform. And because of that, uh, we, we are, are idealistic with our head in the clouds. But at the same time, we have to make sure, like you asked earlier, like how do we make sure this happens with boots on the ground? So we're trying to live in both worlds and uh, we're very hopeful that we're doing that. We have a lot of guidance and support from Rabbi Hauer, from Rabbi Dr. Josh Joseph, from Moish Bain, from, and the incoming president, uh, Mitch Ader. Just so much support around this project. And it's really... Uh, it really is the wind in our sails to make sure that we can do our best to try and affect change in this space in the community. I would imagine it's a big challenge for an organization of this size to take risks and to invest in something that is maybe a little bit uncharted in our community. And I always think about, um, it's so famous that you don't necessarily know if it's misquoted or not, but Henry Ford's famous line, of, if I would have asked the people what they want, they would have said a faster horse. Right. Have you heard that? So it's that yeah. kind of thing of like you want to be able to prove that it's worth investing in, but you can't necessarily do that until you actually, you know, get really far into it and, and start seeing Correct. the results. So it's like a double edged sword. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how that plays out in the real world. On, on that note, the OU is uh, actually pushing forward quite aggressively in this space to ensure that there uh, are ample resources to allow for testing of good hypotheses. We need that latitude because how many times has it happened that, you know, the Ben Franklins of the world, you try a thousand times and one of them is the turnkey for whatever the issue is. We don't yeah. know that this is the solution, but it might be. And the OU is willing to take a little bit of a risk on that and see and see as to whether or not it uh, whether or not it's effective. Let, remember also that, you know, we say this in the Haggadah, if you brought us to the foot of the mountain, but you never gave us the Torah, it would be sufficient. All the Mephorashim, what are you talking about? What's a world without Torah? So as a parable, if you bring us to a place where we've improved the parenting lives of so many parents across the country, but we still fail at the larger, a larger ideal of moving the needle with rates of attrition, it's still a success. Our children will still be better for it, and they'll feel more love from us, which is great. More outcomes, great. And uh, if the statistical move of the needle is only 0.1 of a percent, which we may, we may not consider to be a success as it relates to rates of attrition, okay. But we have thousands of families that have undergone this initiative under the OU's umbrella. That too is a very big success. And I think it's so important because most, I don't want to say most, but many of the local organizations that are not the scale of, of the OU are approaching problems from the bottom of it, which is just crisis by crisis. And they're playing whack-a-mole like this, you know, and it's, let's say, you know, in this specific topic, it's, you know, this kid is going off or this child is in big trouble. At that point, it's really, really hard to adjust those kind of problems. And you're looking at it as like, let's go all the way back to the beginning and prevent those um, stories from happening before they start. And even if it takes 50 years to be able to really understand that impact that you can't, you can't deny how important that is because there's only so much whack-a-mole you can play. That's right. That's right. And and we looked at that. You know, one of the things that communities do, let's say that there's a parenting crisis or, um, you know, some, uh, some inappropriate teacher-student issues come up. So then a community will rally 
They will bring together the, the abuse specialists and the therapists and the, the organizations that focus on that. They'll do in-services in the schools to make sure all the teachers are on the up and up. The rabbis will speak about it from the pulpit, uh, et cetera, all the different things that communities do. They may be very effective. We, we don't know 100%. I don't know that it's ever been studied, uh, this type of, you know, like you said, the whack-a-mole approach. I don't know that it's ever been studied to know how effective it is. Um, it, it should still be done 100%, and it will still be done. Communities need to respond like that. Um, and we we just we, we can't focus on that granular of a level. We're too big. We're, we're, we're decent. I live in Chicago. My, my boss, Simon, lives in New York. I have a, a colleague all, all over the country. Where it's, it's not like we sit and talk every single day in person. We do talk frequently, but we're totally decentralized. It's not like we're all sitting there, okay, today is going to be Teaneck's turn. Uh, let's talk to Teaneck people and see. It's not like that. We needed a solution that was as broad-reaching as possible, but still on the, on the, the granules of stand, sand, still capturing each child. And that's why parents are, are that portal of entry to the children. Look, we have more kids per capita than other communities. So instead of your one happy couple with, you know, 2.1 children, they may have 4.1 children or, or eight kids or my neighbors across the street have 11. You know, there, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of kids to, to deal with and we have to make sure that we're bonding with them the right way. That's why parents ended up being the decision for the, for the singular portal of entry to try and move the needle there, thereby improving their children's um, likelihood for the future within the Jewish people. Yeah, and definitely makes a lot of sense. So I want to just shift gears a little bit and talk about sure. how we first met, which was that um, you, looking back, you invested quite a bit into, from a financial perspective and a time perspective, into branding this. When we met, the this program was called something else. And I, I'm just curious if you can talk about why you felt that was so important and if you want to give anybody a little bit of behind the scenes of what went on <laughs> in that process. Um, that led it to be Jen Aleph and what that means. Yeah, when we initially started this initiative, we were not yet ready to uh, invest uh, the funds in branding uh, in, in full force in branding. We did, of course, start um, with, with a modest investment in what we at the time had called the Empowered Parenting Initiative, which I think we subsequently found out was trademarked. Uh, so we probably should change our name. Um, and then we got to a point after piloting this initiative in Cincinnati where we saw that families were taking to it. They were joining the course. Approximately 40% of the parents in the day school system in Cincinnati engaged in guiding good choices. That's a significant, it's not a large community compared to, you know, Chicago or New York, but it still is meaningful um, in, in regards to participation rates. Normally when you run a program in a community, you get 5% or 2%, you know, you, to get 40% of anyone to do anything is a significant number. So when we, we saw that, then we're like, okay, uh, and the leadership was with us. We're like, we're we're sitting on something really big here, and we need to we need to ramp this up. So then we did round two with uh, with your team, and uh, we established uh, a new branding, and we went through a bunch of iterations, and uh, we landed on on Gen Olive, Generation Olive, where the focus of the whole initiative is strengthening the parent child relationship. That is the entire goal of what we do. All the resources that we have are focused on that. Um, for example, we're starting a new podcast called The Jews Next Door, D-O-R, Dalit Bavresh, a little play on words. Um, and that is focused on helping to build passionate and committed Jews for the next generation. The whole podcast is built on the principle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where you start with the most fundamental issues first and then scale up to help a child actually self-actualize, as Maslow himself called it at the tip of the triangle. 
Um, we already have recorded uh, nearly 20 episodes. Our editors are currently working on, on editing as we speak. We'll be launching Please God over the next many weeks. Um, all around the same thing. It's all one question. How do we bond better with our kids? How do we bond? That needs to be the bumper sticker. Have you bonded with your children today? That, that's what it's all about. That's what it has to be all about. So when we were de- defining and deciding on a title, uh, on, a, on a name for this project, Generation Olive had two things going for it. Number one, it had generations, which is obviously not only mine, but the next. It implies continuity. And Olive is the first of the Olive base, the most fundamental, the most basic. And uh, the Maharal writes this, that the Olive, the word MS, Olive Mem, and uh, and tough, they all stand on two legs. They're the most stable of the letters. Whereas Sheker, they all stand on a point. Sheker will always tip over. So the Aleph also had that strong, uh, basic foundational ideas, which is, of course, as mentioned, uh, is bonding with your kids. So that's how we got to Generation Aleph. Um, and um, we're really firing on all cylinders now to uh, to finalize our website and podcast and the other resources that we offer to launch over the next many weeks. And then we'll be... Uh, We'll be in full force, ready to go, and uh, we're starting, please God, with Florida to deploy programming there over the next couple of months as well. So thank God. Very exciting KUFA uh, in our department now. Yeah, it sounds very exciting, and it was a, a huge privilege for myself and my team to be involved, and we're excited to see how it evolves, and, and I am excited for it to get to my neighborhood for sure. Ah, thank um, you. <laughs> so yeah, this was great. Before we end off, I want to just... Um, go back to the fact that you work for this whole department and you're tackling a lot of problems beyond just this one. So yes. um, I'm curious. I like to ask kind of theoretical questions. If I were to sure. tell you, you know, starting next week, I'm going to give you all the money that you want and you have all the time in the world to focus on the next challenge, um, something that no one's either talking about or dealing with it. What, what would you pick if you can pick one? I have a dear friend here in Chicago who is a shul rabbi. We grew up together. He's a couple of years older than I am. And, um, we had him for a Shabbos meal, um, sitting at this very table. And uh, in a quiet moment during dinner, I said to him, what are some of the biggest challenges in the rabbinate? Um, and he, he didn't take more than a millisecond to respond. It's not even a question. It's not even a question. What takes up most of my time and what takes up most of my emotions is marriages that are unsuccessful in the Orthodox community. Unequivocal. And it's not just him who's saying it. We also see it, we see it in our own shoals uh, where, uh, you know, couples of all ages are, are getting divorced uh, at rates that are uh, unique to the history and the research of the Orthodox Jewish community. Um, what, to what it is attributed, I'm sure, is subject to a lot of conjecture, some of which is probably similar issues uh, to, to the children and parent issues of making sure that we're really giving ample attention and, and giving mutual respect and kavod and all of those pieces. So um, I would say that uh, it's actually a corollary to parenting. There's some research that indicates that some of the best parenting advice that you can give someone is to have an awesome marriage. Because when you have an awesome marriage, your kids see what conflict resolution looks like. They see what it means to be patient even when you're tired and you don't want to. They see if somebody makes a snarky comment, you have to be mature and respond like a mensch. If you do, great. If you don't, too bad. Your kid already learned it from you because they're just watching, modeling. When they get married, they're going to do the same thing to their wife for good and for bad. So if you're a mensch to your spouse, your kids are more likely to be a mensch to your spouse. So if you gave me all the money in the world, 
I think one of the things that would enhance a lot of the other things that we're doing is uh, to work uh, in a steadfast way on enhancing the quality of marriages. Uh, it's hard to say that anyone else in my department would agree with that, but I certainly my <laughs> certainly my instincts are, are definitely there. Look at, well, at the end yeah. of the day, we're, we are we are relationship beings. That's who we are. Our whole interactions with the world externally is all about relationships. Um, and some people are better at it than others, and some people are fine at relationships. But when anger gets involved, or when tiredness gets involved, they lose themselves. Um, you know, so I, I think just in general, the relationship skills have all worn down. There's some research on this because of COVID, when some of the younger kids were wearing masks for so long in school, they like they they struggle to like read people's faces and capture emotions. And there's some there's some burgeoning research on that that I've seen recently. But uh, it's all about relationships, and, and we have to be exceptional in that space. But you know, like we we have this this odd thing that like, yeah, when, when a couple gets married, so he'll have chasen classes and she'll have kala classes, which deal with the halachos and the hashkafos of intimacy, 100% absolutely critical. But there's no like 10 commandments on like the social interpersonal space. You know, e even something as simple as money can be stressful. Who's going to manage the money? Work on it now before you're stressed, because at some point you're likely to be stressed with money. So like, it's simple, like there should just be some clullum, some basic ideas uh, that we can impart to young couples. It won't fix all the problems. It won't fix all the problems. And I'm also not speaking about anything clinical. Obviously, if there are clinical issues, go find a, a capable therapist. I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying the run of the mill, normal husband-wife issues, a lot of them can be resolved with good education. They can be resolved with good relationships between a rabbi and, uh, and the couple, between a Rebbiton and the couple, a mentor, whatever it may be. I'm meeting with a couple tonight. A couple reached out. They wanted to work on a particular sugya that they're struggling with. Good, very good. So they have a resource that there should be more of that. But what if we, what if it, I, now I'm putting out a fire, but what if we had a way to do what we're doing with parenting, which is to go back to the very beginning. So we have the Orthodox rabbi is always a Masada Kedushan. Let's work with the Masada Kedushan. There's chassan teachers and college teachers. Let's work with them. Great. Let's find a, a way to build an initiative, a movement, a movement, not just a program, a movement that changes the tone around marriages to improve them. It so, seems like it would almost be a foundational piece to the Jen Olive piece because I would imagine for a couple that's struggling in their marriage, bonding with their children might be a little bit out of reach at that point. So it almost like, yeah. besides for the fact that children who are raised well will become better spouses, <laughs> you know, yeah. that piece of it. So that is really interesting. And I hope to, we, I hope we, we actually that. do speak about this in our trainings. We do speak about this, that if, you know, I, I say this openly when I, when I give the parenting courses that I just want to say, we're going to learn a lot about bonding, but if the two of you sitting at that table right now, uh, have some work to do and every couple has some work to do, some have more than others. Those are things that you should be working on in a parallel path with your parenting. Because sure. it is parenting. It is parenting. It's not just behind closed doors. Kids see and absorb everything. They, you can't escape it. They're, they see things. They know. They get it. Um, you know, I, when, I was a, when I was much younger, we had, uh, at the time, our firstborn children, Usher and Yaakov, our twins. They were probably two or three years old. We were living in Yerushalayim at the time. And one day, I was leaving for Mincha. Um, I was in a rush. And I, uh, I normally would have grabbed a safer off the shelf. I didn't think about it. I ran out of the house to Mincha. Right before the door closed, my son, Yaakov, comes over to me and he says, Abba, Abba, you forgot your safer. 
Now, the book that he handed me was What to Expect When You're Expected, which was <laughs> <laughs> probably not the right book to bring to a, to a show in Harnof. But, uh, but the point is true. And also uh, the opposite. My kids uh, have seen me snack before dinner on a cookie, which means guess what? They're going to want to snack before dinner on a cookie. So we have to make sure that we are just modeling uh, with the highest of standards, holding ourselves to a standard that's even that's hard for us. We have to push ourselves there. But if you gave me all the money in the world, I would probably put a good chunk of it there. Okay. And at that time, call me. We'll do the branding. <laughs> no problem. You're already on the hook. Ah, thank you. Thank you. This was really, really great. I really appreciate your time. If someone wants to learn more about Jan Aleph, where should they go? Uh, they can reach out to, to my team. They can reach out to me directly at uh, karishp at ou.org. We'd be more than happy to meet with you and speak with you about the possibilities of working together in your community. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode, or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tzivya at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com.